point of your Bible. If you're not familiar with it, you can always jump to the front and look for the book of Jonah. Um, not a common one to go to, but uh, we've been studying verse by verse through the book of Jonah, and our journey has brought us to Jonah chapter number one today and verse number 17. And so I'll give you a second to get there, and I'm going to put this thing on. Let's see. Can you hear me now? Hallelujah. Don't have to holler quite as much. I probably still will, but I don't have to. Uh, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be at in our study of the Scripture here this morning. And let me just say again, um, thank you. Thank you to our church family who has worked so hard to uh, get everything ready for this day. Thanks to you if you're a, a guest who... Uh, is honoring us with your presence here. Uh, I'm excited to be able to uh, stand in front of uh, this group of people and take the Bible and tell you what the Bible has to say to us today. And I tell you, there's nothing more important going on today than this right here. And I don't say that because I'm the one preaching it. I say that because this is God's Word. And uh, there's nothing more important than the Word of God. Not a football game, all right? So guys... And get, I found out this is a lady thing now, too. Just put away the fantasy football for just a minute, okay? Uh, I'm preaching to the choir here, all right? But just think about what God has to say for us today. Can you imagine if we had a special Sunday and we put out a flyer and we said, Jesus Christ is going to be our special guest this Sunday? Do you think people would come out to hear him? I don't know nowadays, but probably wouldn't believe it, <laughs> Okay. But you know, this Bible right here is the Word of God. I'm not pretending like I'm Jesus here this morning, but I am telling you, this is His Word for us today. And it is just as important if that were the case. And that's what we're going to look at from the Scriptures here today. And so we've been studying in the book of Jonah. And up to this point, I just want to catch you up to speed with where we're going to be at, because we're going to be in verse 17. Up to this point, there's this guy named Jonah. He's a prophet from the northern uh, uh, region of Israel, and he had been prophesying to his own nation, the people of Israel. But God came to this prophet one day and told him, I want you to leave your country. I want you to go to the country of your enemies, the Assyrians, and I want you to preach my word to them. And Jonah said, uh-uh. And he ran, the Bible says, in chapter 1. He ran from God. The Bible says he ran in the opposite direction that God wanted him to go. And he ran down to Joppa and he got on a ship and boarded that ship to go to the farthest place he knew of away from where God wanted him to go, to Tarshish. But he couldn't get away from God. The Bible says while he was on that ship, God sent a great storm on the waters to remind him that he knew exactly where Jonah was. The Bible says that Jonah, being found in the midst of this storm, realized that if he continued on in his rebellion, that not only was he going to lose his life, but all the sailors um, who, he was, who was sailing on that ship with him would also lose their lives. And so instead of submitting to God and going back to, tar going back to Nineveh like God wanted him to, the Bible says that Jonah told them to do something rather curious. He said, throw me overboard. He'd rather get thrown overboard than do what God had asked him to do at that point in time. 
And so those sailors, they tried everything they could to not throw Jonah overboard, but nothing would give. And so the Bible says, as we discovered last week, they eventually threw him overboard, and he was cast into the water, and the storm ceased from her raging. And you'd think that that's where Jonah's story came to an end, stranded at sea. But God wasn't done with him yet. I want you to see what the Bible says happened in verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1. If you're there, say amen. The Bible says in verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Three days and three nights, the Bible says Jonah was in the belly of that great fish. Was it a whale? Was it a sea monster? I don't know what it was. There was something massive to be able to swallow a man. And after three days and three nights, the Bible tells us what happened in verse 10. The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Now, two things about that. Have you ever been fishing before? All right. You, you like to talk to the fish, don't you? All right. Please jump on my hook and all that. Okay, here's an example. God speaks to fish too, okay? So that's biblical. <laughs> the second thing is, after three days and three nights, Jonah shows up alive. Now, you look at this account in the Scripture, and to be honest with you, this, this amazing circumstance has caused many skeptics and critics of the Bible and of Christianity to question the claims of the entire Bible, and especially uh, the book of Jonah. After all, I mean, uh, how in the world could a man survive in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights and still come back alive? And uh, uh, from a scientific and a historical viewpoint, there actually are some things that have happened uh, in history that uh, would lead us to understand that this is indeed at least a possibility. I had fun studying some of these things. In uh, uh, 1864, there was a man by the name of uh, Peleg Nye. Now, what an interesting name that was, okay? Um, but he, uh, he was actually a, 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 a whaler. And he was off the, the coast of Cape Cod, and there's actually a book uh, written about this man's story. But as they were uh, going about there uh, trying to get a, a giant sperm whale, um, the story is told that uh, the sperm whale came and hit the side of his ship, and he fell out of the ship and right into that sperm whale's mouth. And uh, uh, as he tells the story, he went inside, and it was very hot, it was very stinky, and he lost consciousness. It wasn't but a few moments later that his buddies on the ship discovered him on top of the water. But there's an instance of a man that got swallowed uh, by a whale. Another instance uh, took place in 1891, a man by the name of James Bartley. He was also a whaler. If you don't want to be swallowed by a whale, don't go into the whaling industry, okay? Um, but he was also a whaler. And same thing, a giant sperm whale. They actually harpooned this thing and were trying to draw it in. And in the midst of all that happening, he fell out of the ship and right into the uh, sperm whale's mouth. Well, his buddies didn't know that he fell in. And so they thought, because another person fell out of the boat and was lost at sea, they thought he was lost at sea as well. And they continued on about their business. They couldn't find him, and they got the sperm well drawn in, and they brought it to the shore. And while they were processing that thing, wouldn't you know, when they finally, about, it was about 24 hours later, when they finally made it down to the stomach in the process of uh, uh, getting, that, getting that whale taken care of, and they began to open it up, and lo and behold, the stomach was moving. And uh, it was rather large. They knew it was something large that was inside that stomach. 
And uh, lo and behold, they cut, they cut it open, and there was James Bartley. His, his uh, skin was bleached white. He'd lost all of his hair. Um, and uh, just an interesting story, um, but a historical a story that points us to the fact that this was at least a possibility. Uh, even this year, I've mentioned this before, uh, there was a, another man by the name of Mac- Michael Packard off the coast of Cape Cod. And on June 11th of 2021, you can look this up for yourself. Uh, he was a lobster diver, and he's under the water picking up his lobsters like he does every day. He was on the second dive down. And while he was down there, all of a sudden, everything got black. What happened? Well, he got swallowed by a humpback whale. And just a couple of minutes later, he found himself back on top of the shore, or back on top of the water. And, you know, it's, it's interesting looking at these, these types of things. But the fact is, there's no evidence any, of any record in history besides Jonah's of someone getting swallowed by a whale or a great fish and surviving for, uh, for three days and three nights. And a lot of people look at what happened uh, in this passage of Scripture and they, they use this as an excuse to say, well, it's just not possible. It's just not possible for something like this to happen. So this is a fairy tale. This proves that the Bible's not true. But can I tell you something? I have no problem with you telling me this is not possible. You know why? Because it's a miracle. <laughs> and a miracle, by definition, um, defies the odds of what nature tells us is possible. This is something that God did, and I'll tell you why we know that's true. If you look again at the verse here, the Bible says in verse number 17, Now the Lord had what? Prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That word prepare is the Hebrew word manah that's translated from the Hebrew word manah. And it literally talks about being appointed or being ordained. And you make no mistake about it, what happened to Jonah here was not just happenstance. It was God at work in Jonah's life. It was by God's design. Ultimately, we know and we believe that this happened because God said it happened. Because God determined it to be so. God created the sea monster that was large enough to be able to consume Jonah while he was in the water. God sent that creature to the exact place that He knew Jonah was going to be to swallow him up. And then God spake to that fish three days and three nights later and told him to vomit him back out. In every, in every detail of this story, we see that God is behind what happened to Jonah here. You know, believing a story like this It takes an element of faith in God and in His Word. Listen, if you believe that God is the Creator, then it's not not too far of a step beyond that to say, God who created all things could do something like this. All right? And if you believe that God's Word is true for your salvation, it shouldn't be very hard for you to take another step to believe that God's Word is true when it talks to us about a circumstance like this one taking place. And I want you to listen to me this morning. There is not a historical or scientific answer to every question that you're going to face in life. And that is by God's design. Because God wants our relationship with Him to be based on faith and not merely fact. That doesn't mean that the facts do not align with our faith. But friend, our faith does not come from fact alone. There's an element that we'll never be able to comprehend, never be able to understand. It's God. God is beyond our comprehension. The Bible tells us that this is how God desires to have a relationship with us as His creation. Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 3, if you have your notes, it says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen 
were not made of things which do appear. The things that you see can ultimately not always be explained. But the things that you do see can ultimately only be explained by things that you can't see. There's an unseen hand. It's God's hand that's at work in this world. And He brings sense into the void that we call our existence here today. So there are some things you can't explain, so you have to take God at His Word. The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 10. I believe this is in your notes as well. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. It says, faith comes from hearing. And hearing by what? The Word of God. Our faith comes from hearing the Word of God. That's an important thing for us to understand uh, as a foundational principle here today. I heard the story of a, uh, that happened to a, a man and his son one night. Their house caught on fire. And as the, as the dad was scurrying about getting all of his family rounded up, um, uh, the fire continued to consume the house. And by the time that he got to getting his, uh, one of his sons, the fire had already engulfed the house so much that he could not go back in. But he saw his son in the second story window of the house. And he called out to his son and he told his son, Son, I want you to jump to me. But the son, he's just a young boy. All he could see were flames around him. All he could see was black smoke all around him. He couldn't see his dad. And naturally, he was scared to death because of that. And when his dad would call, son, I want you to jump out to me. He was on the ground level. The son called back and said, dad, I can't see you. And the dad called back to his son and said, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. And the son jumped. Not being able to see, but hearing the voice of his father. And friend, I love that illustration because I think it demonstrates to us exactly what faith is. Listen to this. Faith is not being able to see, but believing the word of the one who can see. That's what faith is. When you can't see it, but you believe the word of the one who can see it. And I'll tell you, Understanding this principle of faith is so foundational to everything I believe the Bible is trying to teach us uh, here today. For if you cannot trust God's word about Jonah, you're going to have a very hard time trusting God's word um, when it demonstrates to us what God is trying to teach us through the story of Jonah. You see, Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 took the story of what happened to Jonah and tried to teach us a far more significant and superior truth from it. So I want you to take your Bibles and go over to Matthew chapter 12 with me this morning. Matthew chapter number 12. And if you don't have a Bible, this is in the notes that hopefully you got as you came in here today. Matthew chapter 12. And I'm going to read you verse 40. We'll come back and read it again in a moment. This is what Jesus said. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly... So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Get this. Jesus referred to Jonah's entombment, we'll call it, inside the belly of that whale as a type, as a sign, as a picture or an example of his own death, burial, and resurrection. 
There's an important, uh, a far more important truth that's taught to us from Jonah 1.17 than what first meets the eye. And I want you to understand this and then listen to me on this. If you won't believe what God's Word says about Jonah, what is even more sobering about that is that you won't believe what God's Word has to say about Jesus. Because Jonah... Jesus Christ himself used Jonah as an example to point us to the fact of what he has accomplished for us. And so to understand this fully, we must consider what was happening in Matthew chapter 12 and what Jesus is trying to convey to us here. In a room of this size, I have no doubt there are some of you who do not truly believe in Jesus Christ. You might know about Christ, you might even say you're a Christian. But today, from the words of Jesus himself, and what he had to tell us about Jonah in this example, God's going to tell you in no uncertain terms what it means to be saved, and what it means to truly know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and what it really means to be a Christian. And I want you to think about this with me this morning. Before we jump into this, let's bow our heads together and ask God to speak to our hearts. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. And Lord, I don't know the heart of every person that is in this room, of any person really that's in this room. Only you do, Lord. And your spirit has power to speak beyond what my limited abilities can do. And I pray that you take my broken words, Lord, and use them uh, to communicate your uh, perfect scripture. And I pray, God, that you would speak to the heart of every person that's here today. If they are saved, Lord, let them be encouraged in their salvation. And if they aren't saved, Holy Spirit, reveal it to them and help them to see their need of salvation in, this, in these moments that we share together now. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Here in Matthew chapter 12, I want you to look at verse number 38 with me. If you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says in verse 38, Then certain of the scribes, and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet, who? Jonas, or Jonah. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In this text, I believe we see three truths about people who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. First off, I want you to see that what we see here is a ridiculous demand. A ridiculous demand that was made. Look at verse 38 with me again. The Bible says, Then certain of the scribes, these would have been the teachers or instructors in Israel, the scribes and the, the Pharisees, this was a, a sect of Jews who um, uh, held to not just the law, but to an oral version of the law. They added to the law. They, they thought they were superior and more religious than the people that were around them. These scribes and Pharisees answered saying, in verse 38, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Get the picture here. In this chapter, Jesus is ministering to the masses. 
Meanwhile, the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees come to him and they demand for Jesus to give them a sign is what they asked for. What they wanted, what they were asking for was evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. Prove to us that you're the Son of God. Give us a sign that validates these things that you're claiming to be. We find their request was not genuine. It was deceptive. If you go earlier in the chapter, you find that they had held a conference before this took place trying to find a way to destroy Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity. They were jealous of Jesus' power. They wanted it for themselves. And so they're not really wanting to know if He's really the Messiah. They've already decided in their heart that they're not going to believe Him. But they're asking Him to give them a sign. And what's interesting is if you read this whole chapter here in Matthew chapter 12, uh, you'll find that Jesus has already done enough to prove who He was. In, in, in verse number 13, Jesus healed a man who the Bible says had a disfigured hand. And then uh, down in, in verse number 15, he, the Bible says He healed a great multitude of people. And then in verse 22, He literally cast a demon out of a man who had been demon-possessed. And all these things were happening as, as, as these scribes and Pharisees then come and say, we want you to prove you are who you say you are. We just healed a bunch of people. He's just cast out a demon out of a man, and they're asking him for a sign. It makes me want to be like Bill Ingvall and, and say, here's your sign, okay? It's just, it was obvious. It was blaring before them, okay? And there was, there was no way if they were, had any type of an open heart that they couldn't see Jesus proving himself to be exactly who he said he was. But get this, the evidence didn't exist that could convince them to believe in Jesus, it didn't matter how much Jesus did. They made the decision that they weren't going to believe that Jesus was who He says He was. Now, many people today are still demanding signs of Jesus in order for them to be able to believe in Him. They'll say things like, well, Jesus, if you will deliver my loved one from this health crisis then I'll believe in you. If you will get me out of this family problem that I'm facing right now, then I'll believe in you. How often we do this as people? We want to set a precondition for faith in Jesus. That's not how it works. Let me tell you something. There is no miracle that can ever cause you to believe in Jesus. Jesus appeared to you in the sky tonight. It would still not be enough. You can always explain something away. You can always reason something away in your heart and your mind. Faith does not come from miraculous wonders. Faith comes from God's Word. As we said before, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so if you're waiting on a miracle to get you to believe, you never will. I like what Adrian Rogers always used to say about this. He said, believe in miracles, but trust in Jesus. Does the miraculous happen? You better believe it. We have a God who can do the impossible. We don't put our faith in miracles. We put our faith in Jesus and in God's Word. So the first thing we see here is a ridiculous demand, but a second thing we see here about people who refuse to believe in Jesus is a revealing disclosure. Look at verse number 39. The Bible says in verse number 39, but He, Jesus, after they asked Him for a sign, He answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Jesus didn't hold back in His answer. 
He didn't pull any punches. He said that the only type of person who would make such a demand of him were the evil-hearted and faithless people. That's the type of people who would demand such a thing from him in order to believe in him. And this was a revealing uh, disclosure indeed because these people were the religious elite in their mind. They were the self-righteous ones. And when they looked at themselves, they thought they were right with God. They thought they didn't have a problem. But Jesus looked at these men demanding a sign from him and he points his finger at them and he says, you've got problems deeper than what you could possibly understand. An evil and adulterous generation would ask me to do this. And he revealed to them what the condition of their heart really was. First, he called them an evil generation. That word evil is speaking of the nature of their heart. They were bad-natured in their heart. They were sinners by birth. They were sinners by nature. And then he calls them an adulterous generation. That word adulterous is talking about someone who's unfaithful. God who created us. How often do we as human beings defy Him or turn to other things to worship besides Him? And the fact is, Jesus looked at these men and said, you've got problems deeper than what you could possibly understand. And He began to reveal the desperate condition of the heart of all these ones who were refusing to believe in Him. And listen to me. What Jesus made known to these men, He wants to make known to you today as well. You were born as a part of this evil generation as well. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. You have this evil heart. You were born this way. The Bible says, um, uh, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeketh after God. They've all gone out of the way and together have become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible reveals that all of us have this sinful heart, this sinful nature. None of us had to be taught how to sin. All of us learned how to do it because we were born that way. We were born with a disposition towards sin, with a, with a leniency towards doing the wrong thing. And what's worse than this, just like we are a part of this evil generation, we are also a part of this adulterous generation. It's amazing, especially in America, but this is all over the world. As human beings, we were made to worship. The problem is, we are made to worship our Creator and Savior. But we turn to everything and anything else. We worship our jobs. We worship our relationships. We worship our hobbies. We worship our, our leisure uh, activities. We worship anything and everything except God. And we are unfaithful to the very God who breathed life into us. We find ourselves very much in the same position that these scribes and Pharisees found themselves in. Listen, you might think you're a pretty good person, but God says you aren't. Now, that's not what you wanted to come here today, right? You want me to stand up here and say, well, we're all doing the best we can. We're generally good people and we're trying to get to the same place. Well, we may think that about ourselves, but it's not true. And it's not true according to the Word of God. See, the Bible says that it's revealing something to us that we are desperate sinners. And for our sins, we don't deserve to be rewarded. We deserve to be punished. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18, the soul that sins shall surely die. And in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the Bible says the wage or the penalty of our sin is death. We don't deserve good things for the bad things we've done. We deserve punishment for the bad things that we've done. 
That's what the Bible makes very clear to us here. And so there's a revealing disclosure that takes place as these scribes look at Jesus and say, we want you to prove you are who you say you are so we can believe in you. Jesus looks at them and says, you won't believe no matter what I do because you have an evil heart. The only way you can be saved is if you, if, if you allow me to change your heart. You've got to believe in me. Next thing we see taking place here in this passage is a revolutionary declaration. Listen, verse number 39. The Bible says, But he, Jesus, answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. The skeptics wanted Jesus to prove who, that He was who He said He was. But here in these verses we just read, we find that Jesus would not grant them this proof. He would not give them any more proof of who He was than what had already been given. And they said, we want you to prove who you are through your works. Jesus says the only way you'll believe is if you, if you listen to who my word says I am. And he pointed them back to the story of Jonah. He said, hey, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will I be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he says, if you won't believe this, then you'll never believe in who I really am. The only way these people could be saved was by believing God's word about Jonah, which pointed them to who Jesus really was. Can I tell you something? Don't miss this. The only way that you'll really believe is if you listen to what God's Word says about Jesus Christ. Listen, not your church, not your religion, not what mom and dad said. Right? I'm not against your church necessarily. I'm certainly not against your mama and daddy. But the only thing that matters is what God says about Himself. The Bible does give us very clearly what we need to understand about Jesus Christ. And I, I love what Jesus said here in verse 41. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man. Just, and what, that, what, that, what that literally is talking about is, is it's saying that just as it happened to Jonah, so it was going to happen to Jesus. Just as Jonah entered the jaws of the fish... Jesus entered the jaws of the grave. Just as Jonah was kept there for three days and three nights, so Jesus was kept there for three days and three nights. Just as three days later, God raised Jonah back out of that whale, so Jesus Christ was raised again by the power of God after He was crucified three days later. This is a demonstration to us of the good news of Jesus Christ, something that we often call the gospel. How many of you heard the, the term gospel before? Uh, I think that all of us have probably heard gospel before. There are so many misconceptions about the gospel today. For example, some people believe the gospel is something called the prosperity gospel. And uh, they literally believe that God rewards uh, your increase of faith with increasing your health and your wealth. In other words, if you'll just believe more, then you'll be more wealthy. If you'll just believe more, then you can be healed. The problem is, that's all on you. 
It's nothing on God. And if you have a problem, it's not God's fault. You just need to believe more. It's called the prosperity gospel. Some believe in something called the social gospel. They believe that we're all uh, generally the children of God and brothers and sisters, and that the way that we change the world is by politics and social reform. And uh, this is a, a mainstream idea um, in, in liberal churches here today. The social gospel. Some believe in a, a gospel of good works. They believe that if you live a good enough life and are a good enough person, that one day God will accept you and you'll be able to go to, you'll be able to, go to heaven. All kinds of things people say about the gospel. What does the Bible say the gospel is? I want you to look in your notes at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have that this morning. This is what the Bible says the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. Our amens are slowly dying down. All right? There's still chili coming. Don't worry, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you, what? The gospel. It goes on in verse 3 and says, How that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What is the gospel? It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Say, so what's so significant? Why should it be so important to me that Jesus died and was buried and risen again? What does that do for me? Like, I already know this, Pastor. I already know that Jesus died on the cross, and He's buried, and He rose again. I already understand that truth. Why is that so important for me today? I want to tell you before we're done this morning. The first reason the gospel is so important for you today is because Christ died to pay for your sins. Listen, He didn't just die to pay for the sins of the world. He died to pay for your sins. See, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4 that Christ died for our sins. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, the Bible says Christ was delivered for our offenses. In Romans 5, 8, the Bible says that God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand? You and I, as we've already discussed, were born as sinners into this world. We have done wrong against a holy God and we don't deserve to be rewarded for doing wrong against God. We deserve to be punished for doing wrong against God. Listen, some, if someone murders someone, we don't look at that person and think that we ought to give them a raise. We look at a person and say they need, to, they need to face justice. They've done wrong. They need to face justice. We've done wrong before a holy God. And you may look at yourself and say, well, I'm not as bad as so and so is. But friend, you're still bad. We all deserve punishment for our sins. And the Bible says that without Christ, we will be punished. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's what we deserve. But that's why it was so important that Jesus came and died on a cross because the Bible says He died to pay for your sins. You are unrighteous and deserve God's judgment for your sin. Jesus came and the Bible says on the cross He bore in His body our sins. He who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When Jesus hung on that cross, God punished Jesus for all of your wrongdoing. Listen, Jesus literally suffered hell on that cross. Everything that you deserved for all the wrong things you've done, Jesus suffered for it when He hung on the cross for your sins. 
And the price for your sin has been paid. Jesus Christ suffered the penalty for your sin on the cross. Now you can still try to hold on to your sin and try to take care of it yourself. You never will. You can try to clean yourself up and make yourself okay, but you never will. If you want your sin debt to be taken care of, you want that ledger to, to be emptied out that's being accounted up against you, the only way you can do it is by bringing your sin to Jesus Christ and trusting in Him to forgive you. He already did it. He already suffered for all of your sins on the cross. Now He just wants you to trust Him to do it. You can be forgiven of your sin. That's why the gospel is important because the Bible tells us that Christ died to pay for your sins. Here's a second reason why the gospel is important. The gospel is important because Christ was buried to put away your sins. Why was Jesus buried for three days and three nights? Well, there are a lot of reasons why. But friend, what I want you to understand in an elementary way about Jesus Christ being buried is that Jesus... Christ paid for your sins while He was on the cross, but when He was buried, listen to me, He put away your sins for all of eternity. I like how Psalm 103 and verse 12 puts it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. If I had a globe up here today, all right, uh, the top would be the north and the bottom would be the south, all right, and then we'd have east and west. If you started going around that globe east... How long would you have to go around before you started going west? Well, there'd never be a time when you started going west. If I'm going west, there'll never be a time where I start going east. You see, the fact is, the east and the west, they never meet. And that's what Jesus is trying to help you understand. When you believe in Him, your sins will never meet up with you again. You ever done something and thought, oh, I, hope, I hope that never catches up to me? Well, you wouldn't admit it if you did. I'm sure you have like I have. Can I tell you something? You trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sin. When you get to heaven one day, your sins won't meet up with you. They're taken care of. And Jesus Christ, when he was buried, he put your sins away as far as the east is from the west. What a, what a wonderful truth that is. The gospel is important to you because Christ died to pay for your sins Christ was buried to put away your sins. But here's the final thing I want us to see and we'll be done today. That's, that's the favorite thing that everybody likes what I say, finally, okay? Well, you don't know as I say finally about 15 times, but that's okay. Um, no, I'm just kidding with you. The final thing I want you to see about the gospel here, why it's important to you is this. Christ rose again to proclaim your salvation. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 25 tells us that He was delivered for our offenses. He died for our sins, in other words. But He rose again for our justification. In other words, He rose again to declare us righteous before God. You know what it means to justify someone? Well, here's an elementary example for you. Okay, This, this past week, my daughter, uh, I pick her up from school, and she's got this blessed note. It's called a disciplinary note. All right? Now, don't be hard on the preacher's kids. Um, they're probably worse than all the other kids. No, I'm just kidding. They're just, like all the, they're just like all the other kids, at the least. And Hattie's a wonderful girl. She's a sweetheart, but sometimes she struggles with that, too. And uh, so the disciplinary note, I read it. Uh, well, the disciplinary note didn't say this, but I was informed from the teacher what had happened. She had been caught standing up on top of the, bound, uh, the, the bathroom counter uh, at the school. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, that's really interesting. 
on top of the bathroom counter. So I sat Hattie down when we got home, and I said, Hattie, why were you on top of the bathroom counter? And she said, well, Daddy, I couldn't reach my shoe, and so I needed to get up on top of the counter so I could reach my shoe to tie it. And I thought, hmm, hmm, a likely story, yes. And I just looked at her, and she eventually just went, I'm told that as, teenage, that as girls get up into the teenage years, they get better at lying. But right now, I'm still able to see through it, okay? <laughs> but what was she trying to do? Justify herself. To declare her actions righteous. This was okay for me to do. I was trying to tie my shoe. I needed to be on top of the bathroom counter, Dad. <laughs> Not quite. But that's what we're all, without Jesus, trying to do before God. We try to... Look at our actions and say, God, you know, I, I, know I, I know I had some problems over here, but really my motives were good. And I'm really, I really, I think I'm a lot better of a person than, than the bad things that I've done. And, you know, I'm, I'm going try to, to try, to, try to wipe away this, this wickedness out of my life so when you look at me, you see me as righteous. I'm going to try to justify myself to you, God. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that all of our attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags. You're trying to clean up your life with a rag that's already dirty, and all it's doing is making your life more dirty. You try to justify yourself before God. There would never be a point when I could ever justify myself to God. God is perfect and holy and righteous, and I am not in and of myself. But here's why the resurrection is so important. Jesus didn't just die to pay the price for your sins. That wasn't enough. He had to rise again. Because, listen, if he wasn't alive today, there'd be nobody, nobody who could take the forgiveness of our sins and make it declared before God in heaven. But when Jesus rose again, the Bible says he ascended to the Father. And he ascended to the Father to take before the Father the plea of every person who puts their faith in him. And now, before God in heaven today, the Bible says if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you've got someone standing in heaven today to speak on your behalf. You've got an advocate, the Bible calls it. The Bible says this in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And friend, I'm thankful today that when Satan tries to go up to heaven and tries to bring up all my sins uh, against me in the heavenly courtroom here today, Jesus Christ stands up to the Father and He says to the Father, Father, don't listen to that devil, his sins are paid in full. Amen. Friend, there is someone standing in heaven today who is able to save me. There was someone standing in heaven today who is able to declare me righteous before God. He already paid for my sins. When, when, when someone tries to bring up my sins before God, when I try to bring up my sins about myself, Jesus Christ stands up and says, it is finished. Those sins have already been paid for. What sins are you talking about? I don't remember those anymore. Jesus Christ is the one standing in heaven today and the only one standing in heaven today because He died to pay for your sins and He lives today to declare you righteous before God. And friend, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby you might be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. I'm glad Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore He is able to save them, to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. Who can save you? 
Well, you can't do it yourself. But because of the gospel, because Jesus, like Jonah teaches us, died and was buried and has risen again, he's ascended to heaven today, and he has done everything that is necessary for you to be forgiven of your sin, to know that you're on your way to heaven if you'll just trust in him. Listen, Jesus has nothing to prove to you. He already did everything that was necessary when he stretched his hand out on a cross and died for your sin in your place. You say, Jesus, if you'll just take care of this, I'll believe in you. No, you won't. But can I give you some reassurance? If you'll turn your heart and life over to Jesus Christ, he may not do it in the way you think he's going to, but he'll take care of it. You say, you do this, I'll believe. Jesus says, you believe, and I'll take care of that. Today, it starts with faith. It starts with trusting what God says. It starts with understanding you're in a burning building and you're going to die and you're going to perish if you don't trust in the word of Jesus Christ calling you to jump and trust him as your savior. That's what it starts with. And today, there's never been a day in your life when you've jumped out and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Today would be a good day to do that. Let's all bow our head and close our eyes together. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed here this morning. Now listen to me. Many of you have trusted Christ.